You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with John Degata. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. There are two clips in this highlights segment, the first of which is John reading an excerpt from one of his anthologies, and the second of which is his thoughts on one of his anthologies adapting into a play. There is a naturalness to his thought patterns that feels organic, transparent, and surprisingly familiar, as if we're accidentally bearing witness to how thought actually works. The evolution of an individual mind on the page as it rolls over the folds of a new idea. We've come to identify this feeling of watching thoughts on the page with the experience of reading the literary essay. And I think that if we were to take this idea of the essay and stretch it as far back historically as it can possibly go before it starts to lose its shape and become unrecognizable, we would find ourselves in the first century CE in a little town called Chironea, smack in the middle of ancient Greece in a house that is now a church on the land where Plutarch lived sitting beside the ridge of a mountain that the muses once called home. Chironea is in fact even older than the country it's in. It is so old that it has gone by four different names and today it still answers to two. Plutarch lived his whole life in this town. He says that he knew while growing up that it was small but important and he pledged to never leave it so that he'd never be responsible for it getting even smaller. He pitched in, therefore. He says that he was in charge of maintaining its roads for a while, that he helped decipher oracles in a temple nearby. He once wrote a vitriolic essay about the ancient historian Herodotus, a writer who'd been dead for almost 500 years because he thought Herodotus had said mean things about his home. History even tells us that Plutarch ran a school for local children out of his house and that it eventually became so famous throughout Greece that his descendants kept it going for a hundred years after he died. Plutarch loved where he was from and he understood that it was the perfect place from which to write about the glories of Greece's marvelous past. In 338 BCE, 400 years before Plutarch was born, Chironea was the site of one of the most important battles in Greece's history, a clash of 60,000 men in the middle of the town's tiny quilt of farmland. It was a battle between the united forces of Greece and the encroaching empire of Macedonia that was led by King Philip and his 18-year-old son, Alexander the Great. At stake was the autonomy of Greece's independent states. And while the details of the battle aren't important for this book, what's worth knowing is that Greece was unprepared, outmaneuvered, and crushed into submission that day. With its defeat came the conclusion of classical Greece and the end of Greece's independence for the next 2,000 years. To mark the mass grave of the Greek soldiers who were slaughtered, Chironea elected a 20-foot-high monument of a lion on top of a pedestal, 
It looks forlornly across Chironea's fields of barley and cotton and white narcissus blooms, staring into the round enclosure of King Philip's own monument to his dead Macedonian soldiers. Both graves are still visible in Chironea today. And as you enter the town from the highway, you see them both on the horizon. You see the lion and its grimace, and then you see what it's looking at. You see that the lion is not so much a monument to the slaughtered men of Greece as it is a wounded reminder of who exactly killed them and what resulted from their deaths. Plutarch grew up in the shadow of this monument to lost causes. I like to think of him sitting beneath the lion in his youth, simmering as a boy with both bitterness and pride, and in many ways himself becoming a monument to lost causes, the guardian to a world that no longer existed. You know, there was, there was a, a play produced of the lifespan of a fact book and there's, and I really like the play, but there is, there are a few lines that I really dislike in the play. Um, and, and I dislike them um, simply because they get the same response from the audience every time. And it's not a response I like. There's a moment when the John character is arguing with his editor about, you know, this, this essay that they're fact-checking. And he says, I'm not interested in accuracy. I'm interested in truth. And the audience just bursts into laughter. They just think that that's the funniest thing that they've, that they've ever heard. And I've seen the production, you know, on Broadway. I've seen it all throughout the U.S., um, I've interviewed the actors who've done it in Germany and Hungary and Singapore, and it always gets a laugh. And that completely breaks my heart because, <laughs> because what it tells me is that um, while it's fantastic that, that you know, you see a difference and some readers do see a difference too, for the most part, you know, the experience of this play teaches me that people don't see a difference, that, that, that truth is truth. Truth equals facts. Truth equals accuracy. And that there isn't a difference between, um, between the two. And for a writer of nonfiction, that's, that's very difficult. Or a writer of essays, that's very difficult to... Um, to work with because we aren't, or at least some of us don't consider ourselves journalists, right? The, the tools that we are working with aren't what your favorite color is or where you grew up or what your favorite number is. If we're, you know, writing a profile of something, the, the tools that we're working with are, are long conversations in which, you know, people are sharing anecdotes about about themselves and um, and stuff like that. When I do an interview with somebody, I don't take out a tape recorder. I don't have a notebook. I invite them on a walk um, so that 
we can feel at least that we're just chatting and the walk may be two hours or three hours. It may also be a lunch or something. And I want us to just relax and, you know, come to trust each other as much as we can in those few hours. And, and then we just start talking to each other as people. Um, when we take out a tape recorder or a notebook, the folks we're interviewing start performing and they start telling us what they, they want us to know about them um, in hopes that, um, you, know, you know, what we write about them will, will um, sound as good as possible or make them look as good as possible. Um, those aren't, you know, that, we aren't dealing with the truth anymore in that case um, when a subject in a profile is performing um, a version of themselves for us. Um, we can really only get at the truth when they take their armor off, when they let their guard down and they're, they're talking to us um, as a person. So there is, there is a difference. Um, but uh, my experience with this play tells me that the vast majority of people, of readers, um, of consumers of art, um, don't believe that that's the case. And I think certainly in the current uh, political climate in the US, if not the global climate, I think that um, people, we, we just don't have a tolerance at the moment um, for the idea that there's a difference between accuracy and truth. We want them to be the same thing because we are exhausted, you know. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.